Okay, while you guys are jotting down those verses, I want to start with a, a little story I, I once heard. Has anyone in here ever heard of Muhammad Ali? Sure, I think we all have, yeah? So there's a story of Muhammad Ali, and he's flying on an airplane, right? So they get to, you know, the cruising altitude of 30,000 feet or whatever it is, and uh, they run into some moderate turbulence. Now, anybody who's been on a plane, you know that mild turbulence is anything but mild, and moderate turbulence is kind of a code word for it. You know, if you believe in God, you might want to start praying to him at this time. But anyway, they run into some, some moderate turbulence, and <clears throat> what do you think? What light came on right in front of the seat? Yep, that's right. Fast, fasten your seatbelts. So, you know, everyone's quite scared, so they fasten their seatbelts. And everyone complied except Mr. Ali. So the stewardess, she went over to, to Muhammad Ali, and she said, um, Sir, would you please buckle your seatbelt? He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And bless her heart, she didn't miss a beat. And she said, Superman don't need no airplane either. So, so buckle your seatbelt. And, and I tell you this story because this is almost a, a Superman task that we have before us. I mean, we have two weekends to get through 14 Bible studies. I mean, we called it a Bible boot camp for a reason. It's going to be intense. But I'm telling you, if you guys stick with it and you get these Bible studies marked in your Bible, you won't regret it. These things have changed my life, and uh, I think we're going to have a powerful experience. And I also want to tell that story because... Um, because we have so much material we want to get to, and seeing some of the faces in here, I know there's a wealth of biblical knowledge in here. So, so sometimes we, we, we might want to add a little bit or, or raise our hand and say, you ever view it in this way? And, you know, we, we appreciate the, the input, but we just need to, to kind of keep, keep going here and not, and not slow it down too much. Does that make sense? I mean, we still encourage questions. And if you have questions, we just hope that it will be to, to clarify what the teacher is is presented and not so much get off on too many tangents. Okay? So we're going to begin with our first study, and I'm going to teach this in a very simplistic way because this Bible study is not just for us to, to understand, but I'm going to teach it to you so you can teach it to someone else. Fair enough? Okay, so under study, we should all have Word of God. And then next to Word of God, you see that I wrote WG. Each one of these studies, we're going to try to put a little two-letter abbreviation. So when you mark your Bible in the side column, you can write WG and then your notes for each of these verses that we're going to cover. So I mean, before I gave a Bible study, I was terrified, man. So I was like, just tell me what I need to say. I'm going to write those notes in my Bible and I'm going to read them off when I give them to people. And I hate to tell you, but that's what I did the first study and the woman loved it. I mean, you, th you think you don't know enough, but you do. And uh, y y you'll see. You can... These are great studies, and people are going to love them. So does everyone have the, the, the verses marked down, the know it and mark it? Okay. Now, under purpose, I'll just read this off slow enough so we can copy it. So the purpose of the Word of God study is to demonstrate that the Bible is trustworthy. To demonstrate that the Bible is trustworthy And to show that Christianity is reasonable, credible, and indeed, and indeed sent from God. To demonstrate that the Bible is trustworthy, and to show that Christianity is reasonable, credible, and indeed sent from God. Okay? And now center it. Each of these studies, we want to center them upon a person... 
of Jesus Christ, right? So each of these we want to center upon Jesus Christ. In the center, you're going to write, the Bible is the clearest revelation of God and is ultimately given to draw his children into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible is the clearest revelation of God and is ultimately given to draw his children into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Does anybody need to hear either of those again? The last one or both? Both? All right, both. Purpose. To demonstrate that the Bible is trustworthy and to show that Christianity is reasonable, credible, and indeed sent from God. Center it. The Bible is the clearest revelation of God and is ultimately given to his children and is ultimately given to draw his children into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? And I like things to be easy to remember, right? I come up with all these crazy mnemonics. I'm a med student, and I can only remember so much, so I like to, to have things all begin with the same letter and stuff like that. So we, all, we started this with the same letter, the claims, content, and consistency. A very easy way to approach this. And this is quite a topic. I mean, why the Bible, right? Why not the Quran? Why not any other holy book? Is there good reasons that, the, that we should trust in the Bible? Is this book any different than any other one? So first we're going to look at the claims that the Bible makes. Now we want to open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy Matthew, Mark, Luke, John <clears throat> Acts, Romans come to the Corinthians and you got you guys remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? General Electric Power Company, or Go Eat Popcorn, right? And then you come to the T section, and there's something about the T section. Does anyone notice anything there? They're alphabetical order, yeah? Great ways to remember this. So, I mean, you're going to see when you're studying with someone that doesn't have any idea about the Bible, there's a good way to explain to them. I mean, sometimes they don't even want to open it. They just they don't even know where to go. So you want to explain to them, you know, how to get to these different books. So we're going to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And I'm going to grab the, the mic here. I like to be interactive, so I want to call on some of you guys to read. Is that okay? I'll take that as a yes. Don't touch the switch. Do we want to? Yeah, we'll do that. Okay. So does somebody want to read 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17 for us? Don't everyone put their hands up at once. All right, my sister right here. Thank you. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, Truly furnished unto all good works. Okay, thank you. You'll take it, Jimmy? Good man. Okay, you can see I have the little star there. Verse 16 is really what we're after here for the claim, but we're just going to simply walk through each of these verses in a way that I like to do it is to ask just very simple questions that can be answered from the text. Okay, very simple questions. So I ask you guys, what is the purpose, 
Now, my Bible says the sacred writings. I think her says scripture. What is the purpose of scripture? Who knows? According to the text, according to verse 15, what is the purpose of scripture? Verse 15, starting in verse 15, the purpose of scripture. That's right, to make you wise, to give you wisdom, yeah? To give you wisdom, is, is it just it? Is it stop there? Is it just something mental, or does this lead to something else? Lead to salvation through who? Jesus Christ. So right away, the very first text you take someone to, we're already introducing this topic of salvation, right? Because that's ultimately what these studies are going for, to, to bring someone into a saving relationship of Christ. So in your notes there, you can just write very simple. You can ask them the question, what is the purpose of Scripture? Gives you wisdom to, to lead to salvation through Jesus Christ. Okay? Now verse 16 it says that Scripture is inspired by God. Now, how much Scripture is inspired by God? All Scripture. Now, sometimes, because we've, we're so well-versed in the Bible, we jump right past these things. But we need to realize how big of a claim this makes. It says that all Scripture, mine says, is inspired by God. Does anyone have a different, different reading there? Anything other than inspired? God breathed. So... Let me. I like this word. The Greek is theopneustos. Yeah? It comes from the Hebrew. The Hebrew for breathe would be ruah. I, I like the Hebrew words because they, they sound like what you're saying, like a breath, like ruah. It's, it's, it's a breathy word. Um, I mean, this isn't something you have to share. It's just kind of for our own knowledge. But, I mean, think about this. It says all Scripture is God-breathed, meaning God actually spoke this book into existence. So right away, of all the millions of books that are out there, the Bible is putting itself into a category where there's only a handful of other books. So all throughout the study, we're trying to show that, you know, the, the Bible, you know, is in, is in a category of all of its own. It's making a claim that it's not just any book, but it's actually inspired by God. Okay? God breathed, inspired by God. And again, we want to right away want to start making this contrast that, you know, the Bible is it's something different. It's, 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 in its in, it's in its own category here. Now, verse 17, um, it says that all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be equipped um, for every good work. So there's a sense of completeness here. The Bible isn't not just some book that, you know, that God spoke into existence, but it's actually given to complete us and make you perfect for every good work. There's closure there. Okay? So, and now I'll tell you, so now we're on to transition. Go ahead and write down transition. Like I said, I wanted the people to tell me, you know, exactly what to say when I'm in this Bible study. So here's the transition, and you can just say that, you know what? This is a huge claim that Paul is making. That the Bible is actually, you know, inspired by God. So let's see what some other Bible writers had to say about this. Okay? So this is a huge claim that Paul is making. Let's see what some other Bible writers had to say about this. Is this a good speed? Is everyone able to keep up and jot your notes down? If I, if I go too fast, slow me down. I get, I get very excited about this stuff and I can just, I can get going. Okay. So there's your transition. Now we're going to 2 Peter Chapter 1. 2 Peter, we want to turn to the right in our Bibles. 
2 Peter. Chapter 1, we're going to read verses 19 through 21. Anybody here want to help us out? Read that for us. Nice, strong voice. I know some names in here. I'll call on people. <laughs> Second Peter, chapter 1, 19 through 21. Okay, so it says that we have something that is made more sure. What is that that is made more sure? Anyone? He said the voice of the prophets, right? Mine says the prophetic word. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, more sure than what? Does anyone know what he's referring to? What is he talking about from verses 16 to 18? Does anyone know? What's that? Exactly. The transfiguration, right? Uh, let's just look at that real quick. I'll read it. Starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, where we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. So I, I want us to realize the power of what, what Peter's saying here. So he's, he was with Jesus there on the, the transfiguration and saw this with his own eyes, his very own senses, and then he comes and says, we have the prophetic word that is more sure than this. So more sure than even our own, sen our own senses, we have the prophetic word, in other words, the voice of the prophets. Okay? And then it says that, it's not only more sure, but that this is a, a something shining in a dark place. What does the Bible say there? A light or a lamp. And then, I mean, you can begin to, to reason what the person you're studying with. You can say, you know, is, this world is a dark place, isn't it? You know, there's, there's a lot of terrible things that go on in the world, but, you know, and this, this idea of a lamp or a light, this is not something that's uncommon to the Bible. Psalm 119, 105. Um, yeah, I just put it up there. That's something you can go to if you want or just reference it. But it says, what does Psalm 119, 105 say? Yep, that word is a, 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 lamp in, a, light, a lamp into my feet and a light upon my path. I knew I'd get nervous and mess it up. So the Bible, it gives us direction in life. It, gives us, it lights our path in this dark world that we're living in. Okay? And now we're kind of getting to the meat again. Um, and the morning star here, again, this is just... I, don't, I think Chelsea kind of explained this, but how I want to teach this, you guys, a glacier, right? You guys kind of know the, what's going on with a glacier. That's a horrible picture. But, uh, so that's water, right? And then on top is the, what you see, right? So you only see about 10% of the glacier. 
right? And, and everything else, the rest of the 90% is underwater. So sometimes you don't want to overwhelm people when you're studying with them. So all you want to share is that 10%, right? Just enough that they can get their minds around, but you still want that, you still want to have that knowledge, that foundation, right? So I may be sharing a little more, you know, when I give you, the, you know, the Greek words and things like this. You don't feel like you need to share them, but it's so we feel very confident with this study so we can give it to them, okay? And now we're coming to the meat, because all we really want to do is, again, point out the claim that this Bible is making here. It says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For prophecy was never made by human will, but moved by Holy Spirit when he spoke from God. Quite a claim that the Bible is making here, that it's not just uh, any old people that wrote this, but they were actually moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. Quite a claim. And I like what it says here, it's not a matter of, of one owns interpretation. Sometimes people are scared away about the Bible, right? Like, oh, that's just your interpretation, and this is how they interpret it. But I mean, Peter's saying something quite different here. He's saying that this isn't a matter of just the prophet's interpretation, but that God actually spoke this. And I like to use, a, use an illustration with, with an art gallery. Does anyone here like art? All right. I don't know much at all about art, but I'll use this illustration anyway. So, so you say you're at an art gallery in one of those, uh, ab, what they call abstract, those things where you can't tell at all what's going on, right? So you got a group of people, you got a group of people, and you're standing around and you're looking at this abstract art, and someone's like, you know what? This is what I think. I think that uh, this person, they were going through some struggles in their life, and that's why, uh, you know, that's why he used these colors or whatever. And someone else is like, no, I think this is what this thinks. This person had a struggle, but then. You know, they, they got over. I don't know, just explaining in all these ways. But then the person that painted it comes and gives their two cents, right? And says, well, actually, I just kicked over a bucket of paint, and it kind of spilled, and my dog walked across it. That's how half those look anyways. I mean, jokes aside, who, who are you going to believe in that group? You're going to believe the artist because they did it, right? So uh, apart from when we look at this prophecy in Daniel 2, I'm not going to sit here and scratch my head and say, well, I think this is what the Bible's talking about. We're going to let God explain the Bible, and we're going to use the rest of Scripture to explain the Bible, so this isn't our own interpretation. Does that make sense? I think that our illustration helps to kind of see people, because we want to kind of put the ground rules out right away. You know, when we come to the, the little horn in Daniel 2, we're not going to say, well, I think it's this, and I think the mark of the beast is this. What? Well, who cares what I think, right? We want to know what the Bible says. Okay? Um, so I think I covered everything we needed here. Again, another extraordinary claim. The Bible right away is put into a category of all itself. So the transition is, like I just said, an already extraordinary claim. But big deal if you can make this claim, right? Anybody can do that. So now we're on to our second C, and that's content. This is what's going to back up the claims of the Bible content, and we're going to look at prophecy. Now let's go to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, Old Testament book. Isaiah 46, going to look at verse 9 and 10. We'll wait for, I hear those pages turning, we'll let everyone get there. Any questions so far? Is everyone kind of keeping, keeping on track? Hopefully I'm not throwing too much information at you. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. My sister, you want to read that for us? Remember the former things long past, for I am God, 
God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. All right, thank you. So the Bible says that God is, uh, he says, For I am God, and there is none, and there is no other. I am God, and then there is no one like me. So why? Why, did, why does he say that I am God and there is no one like me? Is there something that he can do? What does verse 10 say? Exactly right. Because he can declare the end from the beginning. And this is what I tell people. You know what? A God that can accurately and consistently do that is a God I can trust. <laughs> Right? A God that can accurately and consistently declare the end from the beginning, that's a God that I can trust compared to all these other gods that are out there. And you know, how many people, how much of the Bible is prophecy? Does anyone know? Percentage wise. 30% of the Bible is prophecy. You know, I'm going to draw kind of a contrast here later with, with the Quran. You look at these other holy books, and I'm not here to bash them, I'm just making a, a, a you know, correlation here. How much prophecy is in the Quran? Does anyone know? Zero. zero. So we have 30% in the scriptures here, zero in the other, and I make that parallel because it's the other predominant monotheistic religion, right? So here we have the Bible, and God's putting himself out there. He's saying, listen, listen, I, I know this is a confusing world, and I know there's all these gods you can believe in or, that are out there, but I am God, there's no one like me, because I can declare the end from the beginning. And that, to me, that's a God that I can trust. And not only could, does he know the end from the beginning, look at uh, verse 45, 21. I'll read it. It says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. So who has announced this from old? God's saying, not only does he know the end from the beginning, but that, he, that, that he, can, he can predict it, and he can say it. Right? So he's, this is a risky claim that God is making here, but he's, he's distinguishing himself from all these other false gods because there's something he can do that no other one can. Okay? So that's what God said in the Old Testament. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. And that's your transition. Let's go to John chapter 14. Is everyone ever, I, I don't want to go too fast. I want to make sure you guys get good notes so you don't go home and you're scratching your head and saying, what was that kid talking about? And you don't even get the Bible study marked. Is, is there any questions so far? I, didn't, I don't want to feel like I was preaching tonight, but it's such a big group. and you know, it's, I'm just a medical student. It's their first time doing this. Go ahead, question. Can you go from verse to verse? Do you start with a question? Um, what do you mean? For the transition? That's exactly. I try to do that for most of them. Like I did that with the first one. Um, I said, you know, what is the purpose of scriptures? First of all, you get interaction with them, yeah? So you, you, you can get some dialogue going. And, you know, there's, there's so many different thoughts on their mind. They're like, what is this? Why did I let, first of all, why did I let this crazy person in my house to study the Bible with me? I shouldn't have agreed to this. And, you know, it just kind of hones them in to actually, you know, pr using proper exegesis, they would call it, to, to extract from the text what it's actually saying. Okay, so very simple questions, and when you study it yourself, so I like to ask myself these very simple questions so that you can actually, you know, dig into the text and see what it is that it's saying. Because we come with so much baggage to the text sometimes. You know what I mean? I just read things, and I'm not thinking about all these different sermons and what they said. 
but we need to just, you know, what does the text have to say to us, right? Okay, any other questions? I love this text. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible. Someone want to read it for us? So we saw that God said, listen, there's no one like me, because I can declare the end from the beginning, and let's see what Jesus has to say. Jesus says, and now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might be me. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. So again, I'm going to ask a question. So Jesus says, I'm going to tell you before it comes to pass, or my Bible says before it happens, now why is he going to do this? So you may what? You may believe, right? Now, does anyone, does anyone in here uh, play baseball? Or like baseball, watch baseball? Yeah, he's on my softball team. He better raise his hand. So I, I love baseball, right? Does anyone, uh, of course, we've probably heard of Babe Ruth, right? Okay, so this is the illustration part of how we're going to explain this text. You don't have to use this illustration. I like this illustration. Um, so does anyone know what Babe Ruth is famous for? Calling his shot, right? It was, the, I don't know, 32 World Series and so Babe Ruth, he's standing at the plate, and for those of us that don't know baseball, he points to the outfield stands, and he calls his shot. He makes a claim, right? He's like, listen, that's where the ball is going to go. Anyone that's ever tried to hit a baseball, that's a tough thing to do. Um, so he calls his shot, and, and then what did he do after that? He did it. He jacked the ball out of the park. And from ever since then, he was, he was a legend. He said, listen, I'm going to do something very difficult. I'm calling my shot, and he knocks it out of the park. So I like, to, I like to tell people, like, Jesus is calling his shot here. It's like, listen, I'm going to tell you something before it happens so that when it does, you may what? You may believe. Exactly right. What's that? Thank the Lord for that verse. Yeah. Amen. Um, okay. Everyone good with that? So, again, we have the claims, the content, you know, why we have prophecy. So now we're just going to look at one of these prophecies, and say whether or not God can actually do this, right? So now we're going to go to Daniel chapter 2. And while we're turning there, you'll see I provided you with, in your folder, this beautiful picture. Very hard work for me to get this, so don't lose it. So take it out. We're going to, we're going to go through it as we walk through Daniel 2. But this is something, when you're studying with someone, um, you know, I just found this on the internet, a Google image, Daniel 2 image or something like that, and you can find it. That way, when you're studying with someone or a group, you can print these out and you can distribute them so it helps guide you through the study. And of course, we don't know if this is what Daniel actually saw, but you know, something probably similar, I guess. And this is the, the, the image or the vision of Daniel chapter 2. Okay. Daniel chapter 2, Old Testament. Now, before I tackle this, this big prophecy here, there's a couple things I like to point out. First of all, I like to give them an overview of what this is discussing. So, I mean, you can write this down word for word if you like, or you can kind of come up with your overview. But the way I like to explain it is just explaining what's going on in Daniel 2. A pagan king receives a dream, and this is interpreted by God through his prophet Daniel, comma. A pagan king receives a dream, and this is interpreted by God through his prophet Daniel, in which he declares over 2,500 years of human history. A pagan king receives a dream, and this is interpreted by God through his prophet Daniel, in which he declares over 2,500 years of human history. 
Daniel lived 600 years before the time of Christ. In the late 500 BCs, uh, 600 BC, somewhere around there, lived 600 years before the time of Christ, and he predicts the rise and fall of every major world empire right down to the present time. Daniel lived 600 years before the time of Jesus, and he predicts the rise and fall of every major world empire right down to the present time. The whole thing again. Okay. A pagan king receives a dream, and this is interpreted by God through his prophet Daniel, in which he declares over 2,500 years of human history. Daniel lived 600 years before the time of Jesus, and he predicts the rise and fall of every major world empire right down to our present time. Okay? So that's the overview. And there's, there's something else I, like to, I just kind of like to put my cards out on the table with people. So when we come to Daniel chapter 2, there's really only two options or two conclusions that you could draw from this. Okay? The first one is you can say, you know what? Someone's just playing a big trick on us and, you know, Daniel didn't really predict these things. He actually wrote these at a later time and he was just kind of recording history as it happened. So either it's a big trick or two, it's actually supernatural. Those are the only two conclusions that you can draw from this. Either someone's playing a big trick and you know what? No one doubts the historicity of Daniel chapter 2. No, no, one, no one argues that anymore. What, what they doubt is when the authorship was. They say that Daniel didn't live in 600 BC, he was living in 200 AD, so big deal. He's just recording the events, you know, well long after they happened. But we're going to look at that in our kind of defendant part. We'll see that, you know what, Daniel was an eyewitness. He wrote these things before they happened, and that the option two is real, that this book is supernatural. Okay? So two options. Either he was fibbing or it's supernatural. All right. So, most people, when you study with them, you shouldn't go through the whole Daniel 2 from start to finish. So a lot of times you can just summarize um, kind of the beginning part and then get into the actual prophetic part. But for you guys, I want us all to feel comfortable with this, so I'm going to walk all the way through Daniel chapter 2. Okay? I'll read it. I'll try to get through it quick. And you'll notice if someone, I mean, if someone, if they're a thinker, man, and they, and they want to figure this stuff out, give it to them. You know, read, read the whole thing to them. But if someone else, you know, if you think it's going to overwhelm them, then, you know, you just got to kind of play it by ear. But I'm going to go ahead and we're going to go through all of Daniel chapter 2 here and make sure we got a good grasp upon this. Okay? So now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. So you see, I take some breaks here, and I kind of explain, you know, so people aren't too overwhelmed. But, so the king has a dream, right? The spirit is troubled. He comes to all his wise men, and what do they say? They say, tell the dream to us, and we'll interpret it, right? They're probably used to this. Nebuchadnezzar probably woke up throughout the night. Maybe he ate some bad food before he went to bed, and he had all these crazy dreams. They're like, you know what, king? Tell us the dream, and, and, we'll, and we'll tell you what it means, and we can all go back to bed. Okay? But it, we'll see it gets a little thicker. 
the plot gets thicker. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and the interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. So notice there's two things that he needs. He couldn't remember the dream, right? And because he couldn't remember the dream, he didn't know how to interpret it. So he needs from them the dream and the interpretation. Two things. Verse 6. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king, the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell the dream, and I may know that you can declare its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare it. Underline, underline that in your Bible. If you don't have a pencil or a pen, just put a little mark there. You want to underline, underline that in your Bible. They had that right. There's not a man on earth that could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who would declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth, and the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So they didn't know. Nebuchadnezzar is mad about it. He sends a decree to kill all the wise men. And Daniel is numbered upon, numbered upon those wise men. Right? Daniel chapter 1, he goes through the, the Babylonian school, and he's one of these wise men. So his head's on the chopping block. Okay? Um, verse 13. 14. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the, the captain of the king's bodyguards who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's command, um, the king's command for, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested to the king that he would give him, what does that say? Time. Because Daniel didn't know the dream, did he? Daniel did not know the dream, but he knew the one they knew the dream, right? So underline that word time. Daniel did not know the dream, but he knew the one that knew the dream. Give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So get the picture here. Daniel's head's on a chopping block. He requests time. He meets his friends, and they have a prayer meeting, right? Isn't that probably what much of us would do? Say, all right, give me a little bit of time. I've got to pray to God. So I want, and you can put, point this out to the person you're studying with. This is a very important sequence. Daniel requests time. He meets with his friends, and they pray. Now notice what verse 19 says, the first word. Then the mystery. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So it's an important sequence. You must pray, then you receive. Right? Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and it will be opened. There's a, there's a sequence here that you must pray first, and then you can receive. Um, I'm going to skip some verses here. I don't want to wear you all out tonight. Um, let's jump down to verse 24. These are just the things that I point out as we're going through the text. 
Therefore Daniel went into Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will, underline that, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Notice the confidence that Daniel has here. He knows that he will declare it because his answer was right from God, right? So anytime you get an answer from God, you know it's the right answer. And whenever you've knelt in front of God, you can stand, in for, stand before kings. Amen? Uh, now well, let's jump down to a few more things I want to point out. Let's go to 28. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known. Underline that. And he has made known. Think of this. Daniel, he, he, was, a, he was a young guy. He was early 20s, 19, 18, somewhere in there. Totally could take credit for this. But notice the humility that, Dan, that Daniel shows here. Not that, you know what, I figured it out. He says that God has made known. He has made known, right? He has made known to the King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place. There's three references here to the end times. We want to point out each of these three references. Okay, so underline these in your Bible. That will take place in the latter days. Underline that. This was your dream and the vision in your mind while on your bed. Verse 29. As for you, O king, while you're on your bed, your thoughts were turned to what would take place in the future. And he will reveal mysteries. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Three references all to the future. Kind of giving us a, a little foreshadow of what this prophecy is about. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So everyone got a good feel of what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Can't remember it. It's going to kill all these people. Comes to Daniel. Daniel prays to God. And we're going to see that God gives him the vision. Okay? And I mean, the options here is you can explain this however you want. I mean, I exhaustively went through it so we all have a good feel of what Daniel 2 is speaking about. So now we're getting into the vision part, okay? Verse 31. So this is the king's dream. This is what he saw. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms of silver. Its belly and its thighs of bronze. And you can see, you can follow along with your picture there. Its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and struck the statue on the feet of its iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed at the same time and became like chaff from the sun threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, and there was not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So here's the vision, the statue, and we gave you a little picture there of the, the different metals. So that's, that's the dream. Here's the interpretation, starting in verse 36. This was the dream. Make sure you underline was. Again, Daniel didn't say, I think this is my, might be what it is. It could be this. He said this was the dream, because this is the answer that he got from God. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them. 
Okay, now who is the head of gold? What does the verse say? You. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Bible says you are the head of gold. And many people try to twist this. They say, you know what, the uh, Soviet Union and all these other crazy things, that's what the head of gold was. And I have a hard time buying into that because what does the Bible say? It says you are this head of gold, right? So you are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. So these are the next two kingdoms. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Okay, so how do we know what kingdom this is? So think of this. Not only is God predicting that at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, he was, he was the big dog. No one's going to take him out, right? First of all, to make the claim that, you know what, someone's going to succeed you at that time, that would have been quite a statement to make. And not only does God say, you know what, you're going to be succeeded. Let's go to uh, chapter 5, verse 28. God actually names this empire that's going to succeed it. 5.28. This is Belshazzar's feast. And we'll find out who it is that overtook this, this kingdom of Babylon. You guys remember this? It's the feast, the, the writing on the wall, many, many, tickle you first. Um, and this is going to say, you know, who's taking over this Babylonian empire. Verse 28. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to who? The Medes and the Persians. So you see on your picture there, the next part is the, uh, the Medes and the Persians that overtook Babylon. 528. And I think I have the dates there for you also. 528. Then verse, we're, back to, we're back to Daniel 2, still on verse 39, just walking through this prophecy. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all of the earth. Another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all of the earth. Now, who is this? Who's that? Greece. How do we know that? Let's go to Daniel 8. Daniel 8. Not only does it say that there will be another kingdom, but God goes on to name this kingdom. And I think we, we, should be, we should be familiar with these prophecies and Daniel 8 and stuff. I'm just pointing out just the key verses that name these empires. Okay? Where are we now? What verse did you just say? Daniel 8. We're going to verse 20 and 21. Another prophecy of these, of these worldly kingdoms. Babylon is soon off the scene, so Babylon is not in, uh, incorporated into this vision. But we have the ram and the goat. The ram and the goat for these two empires. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of who? Kingdom of Greece. So Greece is the one that succeeds Media and Persia. And we'll point out the significance of all this in just a minute. We're just walking through this, explaining what these things mean. Okay? Verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. Sorry, guys. Daniel 2, verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks into pieces, it will crush and break, and break all things in pieces. And that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw it iron mixed with common clay. As the toes and the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so the kingdom would be strong, and part of it would be brittle. 
and that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one of another, one another and the seed of men, but they will not adhere, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So now the Bible doesn't name this last kingdom, but who is this last kingdom that succeeds them? Rome, Rome right? So we can, look to his, we can look to history. You know, these aren't just any old metals. You know, Babylon was filled with gold, and I think Media Persia, they had, their currency was silver. And, you know, these, uh, you know, these metals, they had very significance to these kingdoms. So look at your, your image there. I have a, a quote for you. A very respected, uh, I think he's an English historian, and look at that quote there. This is a totally secular guy. This is not a Christian. Verifying the historicity of Daniel 2 here for us. Someone want to read that? George, you got a loud voice. You want to read that for us? Cold. Javid, oh, do you have it? You said we're this, right? Yep. So this is, a, this is a quote, so we can help show that, you know what, this is historical, this Daniel 2. It kind of verifies the Daniel 2 here. Anyone want to read that? Right here. The images of gold, silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successfully broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. The mm. decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon. Thank you. So where do you think he where do you think he got those uh those metals from? The gold, the silver, the brass, the iron? Right out of Daniel too, yeah? Because, I mean, this is historical, broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. This is a, I find this incredible that Daniel did this. 600 years before the time of Christ. And then, look at verse 40, uh, 42. And the toes were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. Uh, verse 41, rather. Inasmuch as you saw, where does it say that? You find it. Oh yeah, forty-one. And then you saw the feet of to saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It would be a divided kingdom. So who conquered Rome? Who? No one conquered Rome. It wasn't conquered from without. It was divided from within. Right? That's, you can tell someone that it wasn't conquered from without. It was divided from within. We looked at modern-day Europe. Still divided. I have a, I have a list here. I'm sure we know some of these names. Just think of how many people tried to unite Europe. First of all, we had Queen Elizabeth. She was called the grandmother of Europe, right? Verse 40, 43, they were combined with one another in the seed of men. Through intermarriage, they were trying to, to bring the kingdom back, back to one. This duke was going to marry this Yorker, I don't know, however you call it. But the first queen, she was called the grandmother of Europe because she tried to unite through marriages, yeah? We also have people like Napoleon, Charles IV of Spain, Louis XIV of France, Hitler, Lenin, Mussolini, all these people. Hitler came the closest to unite all of Europe again, but he didn't, right? And why, why, why did he not unite Europe? Because God said that this will be a divided kingdom, right, to the, right down to the end of time when, when, the, when the stone will come and crush this thing. So all these people fell off the map, and yet God's Bible still remains true. Amen? Verse 44, it gets better. It gets a lot better. In the, days of the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will be left for one another people. It will crush and put an end to all the kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as it, you saw that a stone. Now, do, does the Bible refer to a stone as anyone else, or a cornerstone? Does that sound familiar? Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's something symbolic. So 1 Corinthians 10.4. We won't go there. We're trying to, trying to wrap this up. 
lots of verses that we can look at. There's some in Ephesians that Christ is the cornerstone. So Christ is going to be the one that comes at his second coming and, and be done with these world empires and set up his kingdom that will never be destroyed. Inasmuch as he saw a stone cut out of a mountain without hands, it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to you the king. The, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. We want to underline both of those things. So I hope, I hope you guys weren't drinking from a fire hydrant there and it wasn't too much. But that's what we're getting at. You know, why does God give us prophecy? I mean, does he, does he do it to impress us? Does, he, d- does it benefit him anyway? He, I mean, what was it that Jesus said in John 14, 29? I'm going to tell you before it happens, so when it does, you may believe. The God in the Old Testament says, listen, there's no other gods like me because I can declare the end from the beginning. I am God, and who is like me? And so we can know that the dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. God gives us this, this timeline, this prophecy, ultimately, so we can... We can be drawn into a, a relationship with him. And, you, and the person you're studying with, tell them, you know, look at, what part of, well, look at what part of the image we're at. Babylon's gone. Media Persia's gone. Greece is gone. Rome has been divided. We're, some people say we're in the, we're in the toe jam, right? We're at, we're at the very bottom. What's the very next event that's going to happen? The second coming. And you can illustrate this. Uh, you know, six of the seven things have come to pass. You say, listen, if I, if I, Javid, I say, you know, tonight you're going to go home and you're going to get in an accident. Don't worry, it's not going to be a bad accident, but you're going to get in a little fender bender and, uh, you know, no one's going to be hurt. So there's one. And when you get in that accident, you, it's going to, you're going to bump it. The accident you get in with is going to be an old friend. You haven't seen this old friend in a while. And then that happens, right? He gets in the accident, then he actually meets with his old friend. I'm like, you know what, Javid, then you're going to go home and your mom's going to call you. And she's going to say, your student loans came through, and it's going to be a good day, because you've been worried about that. So your student loans come through, right? Go, just keep going on. I'm not going to bore you guys with it. But you tell them six different things. And you know what? If all those things come, come to pass, you know, Javid, he's, he's like, wait a minute. This dude told me all these things that were going to happen. And I was going to say, you know what, Javid? Um, your birthday. When's your birthday? January 23rd. So 1-23-84? Say, Javid, your birthday those numbers are going to come in the lottery. I'm, I, I'm not, you know, saying we should gamble and play the lottery. But you know what? Javid gets home, gets off the phone with his mom. The first six things of the seven I told him that were going to happen, do you think he might buy a lottery ticket? <laughs> he, he might. You know what? That's, that's a gamble I'm willing to take. You know, I'm willing to put my, my chips in with this guy. Six of the first seven things came to happen. He says, you know what? My kingdom's going to happen here pretty soon. And that, I'm going to put my faith in that God because he's told me all these other things. Okay? Um, now let's go to our last text, Amos chapter 3. Amos, let's turn to the right a couple. Jimmy, do you know what? Do you have time? Eight ten. Okay. Don't worry, guys. Our second study won't take as long. I'm going to give you guys a 10-minute break as soon as we're done with this, and we're going to be all right. This is a boot camp. We're here to learn. <laughs> tough. Here we go. I'll just read it. Javid. Amos 3, verse 7. Can everyone find Amos? I'll tell you, it's right before Obadiah, but that probably won't help. (laughs) Amos 3, 7. 
Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals the secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Here we have God's MO, right? His modus operandi. He does nothing unless he first reveals it through his servants, the prophets. And that's the God I serve. This God is not out to trick us. He's, we're not trying to have to figure out any you know, thing about him. He's like, listen, I'm not, I'm not keeping anything secret from you. I'm not going to do anything unless I reveal it to you through the prophets, through this book, the Bible. Okay? So we saw the claims. Claims to be written by God. Content can predict the future. Now we're on to consistency. The first one is internal. Internal consistency. And you can just tell someone your transition here is, you know, does it stop there? Is it just the prophecies? Or is there more that make this book different? As a matter of fact, there's a lot more that makes this book different. So the first one is internal. So sometimes when we look at this book, we just say, oh yeah, it's just, you know, one book. Right? It's just the Bible. But it's actually 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,500 years. Yeah? 66 books, 40 authors, three continents over 1,500 years. So think, of, think about this. And these people, they're not just writing about any old thing. They're writing about the very character and nature of God. It is the most controversial thing you know, of all of human history. And we have all these books that yet they, they come together over 1,500 years, authors that didn't know each other, and the Bible, it, it dovetails together. It presents a consistent picture of God. And we have these Old Testament prophecies that we see about Jesus Christ that are fulfilled in the New Testament, written many years right before him. So it, it, this has internal consistency. And these are different people. And you would think about this. You put 40 different people in the same room, and you say, I want you guys to write a book about the best food. The one best food. Do you think they would ever write that book? Forty people living in the same time, the same continent, and you say, you know what, you go in there, you write a book, and you guys all agree on the one best food. Absolutely not. Personal opinions vary on these things all the time. But yet the Bible, on the most controversial subject, we have all these books coming together, and they present a harmonious picture of God. And again, we're going to contrast this with the Quran, the other major, the other major holy book. I mean, this was written by one person over the span of 25 years. I mean, I'm, there's, I'm not saying anything bad about it. I mean, there's a lot of good things in the Quran, but for it to be internally consistent, that just means that this one guy didn't change his mind, right? To me, that's not, that's not as impressive as the Bible. It's all these books coming together, making these prophecies, and present, you know, this consistent picture of God. The next one is translational. Translational consistency. You can just tell someone straight up, the Bible has been supernaturally preserved. Supernaturally preserved. Think about when these books, when these books are written. These are the, I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard for us to get our mind around this. We have hard drives, and we have fax machines, and we have internet, and we have all these ways to store information. But the Bible was written, you know, two to three hundred, you know, so many years ago, and we have these scribes that are maintaining this text, and it has maintained translucently consistent. So how do we know this? We've all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So Dead Sea Scrolls were found in like the 40s or something, and all these people were saying, you know what, this Daniel, this Ezekiel, these guys, so what, they made these prophecies. They probably wrote them when they were going on. So how do we know that the Bible actually predicted these things before they happened? So lo and behold, God reveals to us the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The kid was walking a sheep. He throws that rock into the cave. You guys know the story. He hears some stuff break. They find all these tablets. So they take the Bible that, they, that we have today, yeah? And, and, they, and they open it, and they put it next to these manuscripts that we have that were dated two to three hundred years before the time of Christ, and 
most all the books were there. All but Ruth were there. And we have a book like Ezekiel. The entire book was there. And you put them side by side. And guess how the percent consistency that was there? It was 99 point something. The only difference were things called terms of endearment. Meaning, so you have this scribe and he writes, uh, you know, the Lord, so he sees the Lord Jesus, but then he translates the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Same idea. There's no, there's no um, contradiction in thought. It's just, you know, how you, you know, terms of endearment. I hope you guys are understanding that. I mean, there's a consistency to the Bible, and secular people, they, they, they give you that. They're like, there's nothing else that compares to this. We look at, we look at manuscripts. You know, Julius Caesar, right? Things about his life. There's only 10 copies left of his, you know, of history of his life, and they were written a thousand years after his death. That's right, I said a thousand years after his death. All the originals were lost. These manuscripts were written a thousand years after. Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad, one of the most classical writings, has the second most manuscripts. You guys know how many manuscripts it has? 600 manuscripts. And they were written 1,300 years after Homer's Iliad. 1,300 years. Things like Socrates and Plato's. All these things, there's very few manuscripts, and they were written at a time way past them. And you, all these people that I discuss this stuff, my philosophical you know, roommates in college, they don't sit there and scratch their mind, oh, I wonder if Plato actually said this. I wonder if Socrates actually said this. I mean, if they knew how little of manuscript evidence we have for these things, they, you know, it's only the Bible that they care about, right? So I, I'm kind of hitting at what we're getting at. What's, what has the most manuscripts? The Bible, right? Does anyone know how many just Greek New Testament manuscripts we have? Just the New Testament. 5,300, roughly. Greek New Testament manuscripts. And, you know, Christ died around the year AD 30, 31. And these things were written between 48 and 95 AD. All these other books, they have, in these holy books, they have their things written thousands of years after. But the Bible has it written 20, 30, 40, 50. So what's the significance of that? Significance is there were still eyewitness accounts around. Look at how Christianity just burst onto the scene and you have all these letters of Paul being d distributed and, you know, these Christians are, you know, bursting on the scene. And just think, <laughs> they were writing these things while there were still eyewitnesses around and all that they had to do with this Roman Empire to just put it into this Christian faith was say, you know what, Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead. These guys are crazy. These guys are crazy in the claims that they're making. This didn't actually happen. But we look, to, we look and we don't see any of that. We see that all these eyewitness accounts being written and nothing saying, you know, we have people like Josephus too that verified Jesus and all these things. And no one says, you know what, these guys, are, these guys are washed up. I mean, these were the predominant literature around making these claims and no one, no one was saying, you know, this, is, this isn't real. Um, and just think of the attacks. Diocletian, AD 300, Roman Empire said, you know what, we're going to burn all the Bibles, we're going to kill anyone with the Bible. Um, there's a French skeptical f philosopher, Voltaire. Anyone hear Voltaire? So he wrote that within 100 years, every Bible would be off the face of the earth. Within 100 years, there won't be another Bible. And this guy, he was a pretty serious uh, skeptic philosopher. Led a lot of people away from the faith. But he says, 100 years, no more Bibles. 50 years after he died in 1728, do you guys know what his house is? Voltaire's house. The Geneva Bible Society. One of, the, one of the premier Bible printing houses that we have that distributes thousands of Bibles. Look at, so when the Bible is preserved, you, we didn't realize how many people were hostile to this book and wanted it out of here. 
And I, I read some, some quotes. It's like the, the anvil and that, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. But, so it's the anvil and all these things are trying to, to kind of, you know, bash it out of existence, but all these things are basically hitting it and turning into dust, right? Diocletian, he's here, he's gone. Voltaire, he's here, he's gone. But the Bible stands with us today. It has been supernaturally preserved. And, you know, I can give you guys resources. I'm learning all these things myself, and I, I hope I'm explaining them, explaining them kind of clearly. Culturally, it's the best-selling book ever. Trans-popular. My friend Javita, he's Jamaica, yeah? Jamaicans love it. Russians love it. <laughs> people, people in, I went to Papua New Guinea. Just spirit, spirit-filled people there. They love the Bible. You look at other books, they are not popular outside their culture. Homer's Iliad was not popular outside of its culture. The, the Quran, you don't even actually read the Quran unless you're reading it in Arabic. It is the, the perfect inspiration of God unless you're actually reading in Arabic, you're not actually reading the Quran. Many books are isolated within their culture, but the Bible transcends all culture and all people love it. And then experiential, this is a point we can't, we can't, we can't miss. And this is what I say to people. How is it that such an ancient book is so perfectly designed to meet the needs of common man? This book was written so many years ago, and I can, I can open it up, and I can look at these Old Testament prophets, and it speaks to me directly. And I can tell you, my friends, this, this may sound cliche, but I have found, as Sister White said, the voice, that the Bible is the voice of God to my soul. This is when you begin to, to, to reason with people and say, you know, there's great reasons. The, the Bible can, you know, predict future events, but you can read it, and this book can change your life. There's an experience that you can be drawn into and you can know, just as Peter said, that we are not following cunningly devised fables because we can experience this book. All these other ancient books, they're not, Homer's Iliad, not applicable to our life, but the four major questions in life, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, no other book answers all those, just like the Bible does. Okay. Wow, that took longer than I thought. We're going to move faster or we're going to get through this. I have some defendant. I mean, the major objection is not that, that Daniel's not historic, but that it was written in a later date. Do you guys want me to just kind of show a little evidence? You guys probably want to know, how do we know that that book's really written 600 B.C.? Yeah? I was always wondering, like, how do we really know that? Anyway, so first of all, there's a book called Daniel, a Reader's Guide by William H. Shea. Great book. Talks about this. Goes through the six major objections, and you can uh, look at them there. The Seventh-day Seventh Adventist Bible Commentary has some good reason, some uh, good evidence for this. But Daniel Reader's Guide, there's lots of good text for this. We can try to hook you guys up with those. But the, the main objection, first of all, people were bashing the book of Daniel because of Belshazzar. Right? Daniel chapter 5, they're like, who is this Belshazzar guy? No historical writing ever even mentions this dude as king of Babylon. It was always Nabonidus. Right? N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S. They had Nabonidus as the king. Okay, so they're always, they always bashing Daniel like this. He just came up with this stuff. There was no Belshazzar. So get this. In the year 1861, they found these cuneiform tablets, right? And they were called uh, Nabonidus Chronicles, right? So get this. In the Nabonidus Chronicles, it tells us that it was a dual empire. There was Belshazzar and Nabonidus. And so there's two kings, right? So there's these two kings, and then in that chronicle it explains when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon that Nabonidus was out fighting, uh, was it Cyrus, the Persian troops. So we have this, we have Belshazzar's on the throne, but Nabonidus, which was uh, the, the, the main king, I guess, the president, he was the vice president, he was actually out fighting Cyrus the, out on the fields or whatever. 
So, if, if Daniel was writing in 200, 200 AD with the documents they had, the historical documents that they had, absolutely he would have put Nabonidus on the throne because that was the only king they would have known about because he was the main guy, he was, he was the main you know, ruler, so he would have been on the throne when, it, when they fall to the Medes and Persians. But he put Belshazzar, someone that no one's ever heard about, on the throne that night. I mean, just think about this. How else would Daniel have known that unless he was an eyewitness? Maybe this illustration would help. So we have President Barack Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, right? Um, say that you're reading some... His, it's kind of hard. Our kings don't fight their own battles anymore and stuff. But, but say, that, say that someone puts you know, Joe Biden as the president instead of Barack Obama, right? Because Barack Obama was actually you know, in Afghanistan or whatever, actually leading his army with the sword. And he was the one doing the fighting. So if, if all the historical documents are saying that Barack Obama was the president, they would have put him on the throne that night. But only an actual eyewitness would have known that it was Belshazzar there and not Nabonidus. Does this make sense? I hope I'm explaining this right. So it just shows that you could not have known these things 200 years A.D. These were eyewitness accounts to be able to know this kind of stuff. Lots of things, the verb syntax, the Aramaic that Daniel uses, there's lots of good reasons to know that this book is supernatural and Daniel predicted these things.